Hey, two quick, two quick things, church. One, if you could again take a look at that Connect card. And on that Connect card, would you please communicate to us? Would you please tell us if you participated in the Love Your Neighbor effort this summer? Will you tell us, please, and tell us how many people that you were, that you had to your home, that you practiced hospitality with? We want to uh, gather sort of an aggregate number on that. So please communicate that to us. And, um, and then also be thinking about what is that next step to take with those people that you showed hospitality towards. And then secondly, we had such a great time last Sunday listening to the stories of our short-term mission teams, one that went to Managua, ministering to women, ministering to women, and another one that went to uh, several places in East Asia, and uh, really unbelievable stories. And so think about it as a life group. You may want to entertain having some of the members of those team come to your life group for a night and uh, share those really amazing faith stories that they experienced. Have you ever wondered what God's will for your life is? Do you ever worry about making the right decision? Have you ever wished God would just put his message on a flashing neon sign? Do you struggle with hearing God wondering, is that really God or is it just my voice in my own head? We face all of these important decisions in life with long-ranging consequences. And we want to get it right. Or we face ethical dilemmas. And we want to please God, but sometimes the way ahead seems more gray than it does black and white. I have struggled with these questions through many seasons of my life. I remember the important question of marriage and how much I struggled with having peace about moving forward. Was God really for me? Was he in this My tendency to overthink things on that one was an overdrive. Or an ethical dilemma with our first baby. Our first baby, a troubling question emerged involving when exactly we conceived. Because our insurance started about the same time. It's a pretty thorny question. It involved about $3,000. And in 1987, as a Pastor with not many resources on a small salary, $3,000 was a lot of money. And here I am, I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to be a man of integrity. And that was a tough dilemma to sort through. When life demands a direction, what resources do you treasure? Where do you go in crisis and where do you seek direction? How you answer those questions reveals a lot about you and me. The central characters in our story, Saul and David, Saul the present king, and David the future king, they're both in crisis and their divergent responses open up the subject of how God speaks and guides us. David's story is in chapter 27. Saul is in chapter 28. I'm going to tell both of these stories 
And then we'll compare the two and say, what difference does it make? What do we learn from this? I'll spend a little bit more time on David's story just to give you a heads up so you don't worry about how long we're going to be here. But if you want to follow along in your Bibles, actually, I don't have the page in front of me, but it's 1 Samuel chapter 27. I'm going to read uh, the first chapter. The second I'm just going to tell by, by, by highlights. But the first chapter I'm going to read in whole is chapter 27, 1 Samuel. And it begins by saying, Then David said it in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinahom of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of your country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Let's take a quick look at this. This is, let's see that image, Justin. It's actually a, uh, this is where archaeologists today believe that Ziglag um, was in the ancient days. It's a, it's a, it was a real place. This is their best guess on where Ziglag was. So therefore, Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, oh, I went against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither a man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, see what David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistine gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Close quote. What are we to make of that story? Are you confused? Do you feel a little bit disturbed? You might feel disappointed with David, maybe angry with him. Maybe you're angry after reading that. Maybe you're a little angry with God for calling David a man after his own heart. Or maybe you're angry with God for allowing a passage in the Bible like this in the first place. 
You might feel embarrassed that it's there. You might wonder, God, how can this man be a future king? There's no mention of God in this chapter. Nor does the narrator comment on the rightness or wrongness of David's actions. It simply begins with David recognizing what he must do to avoid Saul. If you look at the end of chapter 26, you see there Saul is Saul's repenting. He calls out to David after David spared his life for a second time, saying, David, I've sinned. He calls David his son and begs him to come back and come home. But David has grown skeptical of Saul's back and forth. Saul is driven by his emotions. He is an emotional yo-yo. David cannot trust his words. David's a man worn down by running. He's been running for a decade. He's without the companionship of his closest friend and confidant, Jonathan. He does not have the household of God that he had once enjoyed He's been cut off from his home. He is in exile. Do the events of chapter 27 describe a man who is broken down and falling apart? Or do they describe a man who is in process? A man who is building a new Israel. One who is even fulfilling the witness of God by reaching other nations. Before we too quickly judge David, I would ask us to consider a few things. Because perhaps there is more here that meets the eye. Could we reasonably look at these events from a different vantage point? For example, yes, David does cross over into enemy territory. But David has been treated as a non-Israelite, a Gentile for many years. Gentiles were cut off from the covenant people, so to speak, the blessings of God. He has been regarded as an enemy. So does crossing over then really represent a betrayal? Or does the afforded protection that Achish gives him help David do what he believes he must do? Secondly, David deceives Achish by telling him that he's attacking Israelites when in reality he is attacking the ancient enemies of Israel. Now a lie is always morally wrong. A lie is always sinful. But in this situation, David is faced with two evil choices. One less evil and one greater evil. Telling the truth would put in danger all of those that look to David for protection. You know, we didn't describe this, but back in chapter 21, when Saul killed the priests at Nob, remember how awful that was? David actually took personal responsibility for that tragedy since his association with the priest Ahimelech put a target on his back. David knew and felt the responsibility of people looking to him. 
You know, in other biblical stories, often in times of war, such as with the prostitute Rahab, the people of God have faced challenging moral decisions. And again, often uh, involving the protection of others. So we must not be confused by this. Lying is morally wrong. And there are consequences to deceiving others. But what do you and I do when we face evils of even a greater magnitude? A third thing. David commits mass murder. And he is terribly thorough. What is happening here? Is David simply a military man of his age? Does he take his cues from the ancient world, albeit a very brutal one? Or is there something else at work here? To consider another option, we have to know a little Bible history. Hundreds of years earlier than this time, Israel left Egypt and headed north. God was leading them to the promised land. The promised land was a tiny strip of land lying on the eastern banks of the Mediterranean. It's still there today in modern day Israel. It was called the promised land because that's where God wanted his people to live out their relationship with him. And he commanded Joshua to take the land and to possess it. Now, because there were already people living in it, that meant he must take it by force. That meant holy war. Now, we spent last summer talking about this, and time does not allow me to fully go back there. But the holy war we see in the Bible is radically different from the holy war that we see today. Suffice to say here this morning that the holy wars in the Bible were highly regulated, very limited in scope, and they were intended only for those who, one, had rejected God's witness over hundreds of years, and two, had become corrupt beyond repair. Those holy wars in the Old Testament express something vital about God's holiness and divine justice for that specific period of history. Today, we have a full revelation of God and Jesus' command Today, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you applies to all Christians at all times. So, I would say this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, or maybe you are, and this violence in the Bible is like a big obstacle for you, I mean, I'd love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee and go into a little bit more detail about this, indeed, troubling aspect. Okay, let's go back to our story. Look at verse 8. With that history in mind, the narrator tells us 
The tribes David attacked were tribes from of old. What does he mean by that? From the beginning, what he is saying, they were part of the territory that God intended Israel to occupy. Was David committing mass murder? Or was he continuing to carry out what God had commanded Israel from the beginning? Was this part of his vision for rebuilding Israel? But you say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at what his motivation was. Isn't his motivation simply covering his tracks? Isn't that why he's so thorough? Well, in one sense, yes, he must cover his deception because he has chosen to lie. It's a very real consequence of lying. We've got to cover our tracks. But is that the only reason that David does it? Could his motivation have layers? Does doing God's will, rebuilding Israel, could that happen at the same time he's extending his lie to Achish? Okay, I know I'm messing with your heads here. I get it that I'm messing with your heads, all right? I'm asking you to think a little bit outside the box, all right? But have you ever done that? Is it possible you maybe are as complicated as David is? Are we ever that complicated? At the moment of doing God's will so enthusiastically, have you ever found yourself in the same moment hiding something? Or not being fully transparent with a boss or a spouse or a family member? And maybe there are important reasons in your mind that you lack transparency Maybe in that moment you believe you have good reasons to do so. And is the writer, the narrator, is his refusal to tell us here clearly what's going on. Maybe he's just drawing out the complexities, not just of David, but maybe he's drawing out the complexities of you and me as well. Maybe life isn't always so black and white. You know, one of the best books I've ever read as a Christian pastor for my pastor pastoral ministry was written by an outstanding Christian leader. And the book has been an amazing help to many people. The author, when he was writing the book, was engaged in an affair, an emotional and sexual affair with someone who was not his wife while he was writing the book. Now, his story is amazing, and he had an amazing recovery, both to his marriage and his personal life. And he wasn't one of those guys who'd like pop back up in three months saying everything's okay. He was not like that. He took a long time to square his life. But it's a mystery, isn't it? It's complicated. Here's the last thing I want you to consider about what's going on in David's life in chapter 27. And that's the outcome of his life. What happens when David is in Ziglag? Notice that he dwells there. He settles in. Ziglag becomes a royal city. Ziglag itself was part of the land that God had always intended Israel to occupy. 
If we could look at 1 Chronicles 12, we would see that David, while in Ziglag, while there, many other mighty men joined him. And not only that, but at some point, men from Gath, that's the city where he's fled to, men and women and their children, men from Gath also joined him. These were not Jews. They were These were pagans. These were Gentiles. These were the enemies. We don't have time to turn there, but when you get a chance, look at the story in 2 Samuel 15. In 2 Samuel 15, many, many, many years ahead of time, David's been a king for a long time. And in that chapter, there's a civil war going on. And we discover 600 men from Gath. Gath. This place and their families are part of David's most loyal followers. One man from Gath is singled out for his unwavering loyalty, a man named Ittai. Ittai even takes an oath by the God of Israel that he will not leave David. We wonder, had he even become a believer in the God of Israel? How did these men of Gath get there in the first place? We can only speculate. In all likelihood, they were forced into David's service. It was customary for foreigners to serve as bodyguards in the ancient world. But however they got there, however they got there, during the crisis of the Civil War, these men, women, and their little ones, these Gittites, these people from Gath, they are given the freedom to go back home. To safety. Instead, they followed David as free men into the unknown and into danger. Why did they do that? We'll come back to that in a little bit. So, which picture is it? Which picture is it? Was David betraying Israel by crossing over to Gath and to Ziklag? Or was this the rational decision of a man trying to survive? Was he lying for self-interest? Or was his primary motive to protect others? Was it mass murder? Or was it divine punishment executed through the future king? Was David spiritually backslidden from the heights we had just seen? Or is David putting together a new Israel, defeating her enemies, attracting those even far from the kingdom who recognize God in his life? I'll just be honest with you. I'm not sure of the answer. I don't know. I'm not sure. And I will leave it to you to make your own conclusions. Pastor Nick is speaking next week and he may have a Firmer conclusion. I've already told him that is perfectly okay with me. Many commentators do take a dim view of David in this chapter. You can tell by my questions that I've raised, I'm not quite as convinced of that. You know, we have the advantage of a rear view mirror on this story. And I wonder how. I wonder how our stories would be told 
if they were summarized in the same fashion. Life is often complex, right? And it's not so black and white. Sometimes our choices are starkly different. The good is obvious. The good guys and bad guys are easy to pick out. But in some cases, especially in crisis, it's not quite so easy, is it? We call them moral dilemmas for a reason. The way ahead is not so clear. We'd like more information on David. Background details the Holy Spirit does not provide us. All the factors that David must weigh are not so clear to us. You know, for you and me, friends, right? There may be times we too have to make decisions that people don't understand. It appears black and white to them. While we see all the complex details and effects of our decisions, good and bad. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Can you relate to that? You ever strained at wondering which way to go? Which way would please God? You pace at night, burdened by not knowing the outcome of a big decision. You may be afraid that others may not understand you and judge you falsely. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there are not any blacks, there are not not any black and whites. As a matter of fact, knowing black and whites is a good place to start when making a complex decision. There are things that are clearly wrong and clearly right. C.S. Lewis said it this way, there's nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is as hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing, and it does not seem to care how painful, dangerous, or difficult it is to do. There are other situations where the way ahead is not so clear. And I think that David has found himself in one of those. In real life, for you and me, we often find that circumstances play a bigger role in determining what we do and what we don't do. Right? And we wonder how those circumstances really mesh with God's will. This is an uncomfortable spot for Christians who are trying to put Christ first in everything. And then these circumstances are thrust upon us. And what do we do with them? Can we justify in here everything that David has done? I don't think so. But is he, is he completely outside of God's will? On that, I'm not so sure either. One thing is for certain, however... And that is that you and me can clearly connect with David's humanity, right? I mean, we are sinners just like he is. We are complicated just like he is. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons I love the Bible. And one of the reasons I think it's the Word of God, because it does not hide any of the weaknesses and failures of its most, like, heroic leaders. Okay. So, got about 15 minutes left here. I want you to just put David's story there in your mind, okay? I want you to put his story right there, all right? Put it on the shelf for a second. And now I want to turn to Saul. I'm not going to read the chapter 28. I'm just going to give you a few highlights 
And then we're going to do a little compare and contrast between the two, okay? So take David, put him on the bookshelf, turn to chapter 28. Okay? Now in Saul's case, there is no ambiguity. Maybe you have felt this morning a little uncomfortable with my ambiguity. In Saul's case, there is none. We know exactly what God thinks, and he will reveal his thoughts to Saul in the most unorthodox, unimaginable way possible. Verse 3 points out the crisis in Saul's life. He has two crises. One, Samuel has died. And two, the Philistines, the Philistines are coming to war against him. Now, the first crisis, Samuel. Samuel was Saul's spiritual lifeline. He was Saul's Bible answer man. Saul depended on him to the exclusion of building his own relationship with God. And then secondly, in verse 4, and by the way, this is the same military involvement that David's been recruited to. It says that they encamped along the hills or in the place of Shunem, which what that meant is that this was not a border war. This is not a skirmish war. The Philistines were deep into Judea and they were threatening to cut the nation in two. And look at verse 5. At Saul's response, his heart trembled greatly. He felt a sense of doom. He was desperate for reassurance that everything was going to be okay, that God would be with him. So in verse 6, Saul prays, and God says to Saul, in response to his prayer, nothing. God is completely silent. He gives Saul no response at all. Saul is told nothing about how the battle would turn out. Now keep in mind, Saul knew a lot about God. He had a lot of religious language, but he never had a personal, close relationship with the Lord. It was Samuel's God, not his. He did not spend time cultivating a personal relationship with the Lord. And now he needs God in crisis, and God is silent How far will he be willing to go to get an answer? Now, this is going to get bizarre, folks. Since Samuel had always been Saul's go-to, his in-between, Saul reasons, well, what if I can bring him back from the dead? Crazy idea, right? And even though Saul had correctly banned all mediums, And such from Israel. Verse 8 tells us he disguised himself and searched one out. What is a medium? A medium is one who mingles between the seen world and the unseen world. Necromancy, or communicating with the dead, was part of the ancient world just as it is ours. Necromancy lives on in seances or quasi-spiritual attempts by the living to contact the dead. Old Testament law had banned such practice along with witches 
and fortune tellers. But Saul is out of his mind. And so he finds this woman in a city called Endor, and he disguises himself. And actually, let's look at this picture, if you would. Interesting, this was an 18th century picture taken. It's really beautiful. And you see there the witch on the left. You see Saul prostrated before this image. This image. Now you protest and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Chris. Aren't these characters, you know, mediums and so forth, aren't they a spiritist? Aren't they a sham? Fodder for tabloids and like 3 o'clock radio, 3 a.m. radio in the night. Well, I can't comment about ancient history, but certainly we can say today there are many shams out there preying on people's insecurities. Trying to give them hope for their romantic or their business relationships. And giving false narratives. There are lots of shams out there. Indeed, likely most of them are shams. But can we say conclusively that so-called mediums never interact with spiritual powers? Even though it is rare, we cannot eliminate the possibility. Why? Because the Bible says there is a world beyond us. There is a world of angels and there is a world of demons. And in the Bible, there are examples of demonic power mimicking true miracles and drawing power from the paranormal. People drawing power from the paranormal. So we cannot eliminate demonic power. That is one reason, friends, that we as believers are commanded not to mess with these things. To avoid Ouija boards, seances, fortune tellers, even horoscopes. If we think by them we're receiving special information from something divine. I won't judge you if you read your fortune from your fortune cookie. As long as you don't make any big decisions based on it. But seriously, we don't need these because we trust our futures to God and discern our future through him. But verse 15 says, this really is Samuel that's appeared. It really is Samuel. The uh, ESV study Bible says it plainly that for years we've debated this, whether the spirit really was Samuel or how could this medium command the spirit of a holy prophet? But as far as the storyteller is concerned, it's Samuel. And why would that be impossible with God? Why could God not bring Samuel back? Saul had cut off every normal form of God speaking to him. He killed the priest. He disrespected the prophets. He never learned to listen to God. I mean, this woman's success in bringing Samuel back was even a shock to her. Maybe she was a sham. Samuel appearing is not an affirmation of her practice. It is an exceptional circumstance. But it's proof that God can speak to us in the most surprising ways. What Samuel says to Saul, if you read the text, is what he's been saying all along to to Saul. The kingdom's been torn from you because of your disobedience. And then he tells him in the most chilling terms what the outcome of the battle will be. He says to 
Saul, you'll be with me tomorrow. How could a demon spirit deliver a true word to Saul? And by the way, that word became true. So I think the evidence is quite clear. That was Samuel. And God used it then, way to speak to Saul. This is what D.A. Carson says about Saul from this passage. The heart of Saul's sin is what it has been for a long time. He wants a domesticated God, a God like the genie in the Aladdin's lamp. One pledged to do wonderful things for him as long as he holds the lamp. He somehow feels that David now holds a lamp and wishes he could get the power back, but does not perceive that the real God is to be worshipped, reverenced, obeyed, feared, and loved unconditionally. Here's a man who thinks of himself at the center of the universe. Whatever gods exist must serve him. If the covenant God of Israel does not help him, then Saul is prepared to find other gods. David and Saul. So how do we compare the two and what difference does it really make? Even if chapter 27 indicates that David has backslidden terribly, by the time we get to chapter 30, it'll be very clear that David has rebounded and he has a tremendous heart for God. That'll become very clear by chapter 20. What happens in chapter 30 Even if David made the wrong decisions on these thorny dilemmas in chapter 27, what happens in chapter 30 shows that God did not forsake David. And that's good news for you and me too, right? David loved God. And God's will became clear to him over time. And regaining confidence that he was in God's will was the inevitable outcome after years of David cultivating a real friendship with God. That was the difference with Saul. That was a difference with Saul. Samuel was the only connection that Saul had to God. Only Samuel could give him a word that he trusted. You see, some of the external behaviors of our two characters look the same. Especially if you take a dimmer view of David in chapter 27. But the stark difference is the two heart of the men. Samuel clawed and fought to hold on to his position as king. God was a name to him. A concept to him. Like speaking out about a figure from history. Or a celebrity that you don't personally know. But David had a heart after God. And a deep personal connection with him. That's the difference between these two men. Real simply this morning, what difference does this story and the comparison make? Here's just a couple quick bullet points on applications from these stories. Number one, don't mess with magics and and mediums. Don't mess with it and superstition and magic and all these things. God commands us to avoid those things. Secondly, Don't assume people who use religious language have a personal connection with God. 
We see people all the time using religious language. Don't assume they have a personal connectedness to God. Thirdly, make sure that you have a personal faith in God that's yours. Don't equate knowing a pastor or knowing a holy man or attending church with knowing God. Ask yourself, is there a kernel of genuine belief in me, even if it's small, even if it hasn't grown much? Is there a kernel of genuine belief in my heart? Over time, we show belief through our response to Jesus' words. And number four, develop a personal, ongoing conversation with God, inviting Him into every area and every facet of your life, giving Him leadership over every area of your life. You see, Saul wanted answers. Saul wanted answers. Saul wanted solutions. Saul wanted to know, in a general sense, the will of God. But he didn't want God. (laughs) He wanted answers, but he didn't want God. David wanted God. That's the difference. You know, back to all my initial questions that we talked about in the beginning about moral dilemmas and when we don't know what to do. Here's, I think, the big idea of this story. Here's how I phrase it. If we focus on loving God and loving others, if we focus on loving God and loving others, we will receive guidance in our lives, We will hear God speak. We will experience friendship with him. And we will know as well. Okay, let me say it one more time. If we focus on loving God, and if we focus on loving others, we will receive the guidance that we need. We will hear God through his Holy Spirit speak. And we will experience a friendship with him And over time, we will become certain of what his will for our lives is. Pray with me. Father, as I think about my friends here this morning and all of the things that they have come with in their hearts, Conflicts, questions, shame, guilt, um, perplexed about the decisions that they've made in life that were so hard that were not black and white but gray. Wondering, are you still with them? Can their hearts still rebound? If I made the wrong choice, can I come back, God? Father, I ask this morning that from your spirit, a a healing would take place. To all of those this morning, in my mind, I, I, I I, I see fractured souls. Fractured souls. Souls that need mended, healed, reconnected 
shame that needs to be spoken to. The need to see the face, to not just hear a Bible doctrine, but to see the face of Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. There is no condemnation in me. Father, I pray that my friends could not just know the doctrine, but could see your face and hear your voice through your Holy Spirit say, you are redeemed. You are set free. The decisions, the regrets that have plagued you for years. I've come to release those from you. I've come to carry that burden. Father, as we sing and as we pray and as we give of ourselves first, and then as we show our appreciation and love for you by the giving of our resources, may this be a holy moment for our church. And a holy moment for my friends. Father, if some are not yet a Christian, not said yes to you. Father, if they're ready in this moment, may they hear your voice and say yes to you. For us that are already members of the kingdom of God. May our hearts once again be revived and renewed in love to you and love for one another. And then you will help us find your will. Won't be maybe as hard as we thought it was going to be. Lead us. Lead us through Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.